Welcome to Change Our Talk, where we discuss political issues with the aim of bringing some sanity back into our conversations. If you are like many Americans and are fed up with the state of the political landscape, the us versus them talking points, and the lack of substance from our elected officials, then this podcast may be for you. You can see full notes and more about what we do and what we hope to accomplish at changeourtalk.com. I am your host, Dylan Renzel. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Hey, welcome to episode one. Today's episode is going to be focused on the partisan political divide in America and why it's there and what we can do about it. So simply put, we need to be having conversations that are simply more productive. And I'm not just talking about, you know, treating other people better or, you know, I'm not going to be on here telling people just to be nice to one another. Although I think those are good ideas, obviously, and they certainly don't hurt. That's not the point of change our talk. I don't think people realize the way we talk about issues causes a ripple effect into the very function of our government. And the function of our government, or rather how well or how poorly it functions, directly impacts us in our daily lives. So in short, it starts with us and it ends with us. So in today's episode, I want to do a couple of things. Number one, I want to provide an explanation for the divisions that we see and some relevant historical roots to understand, or at least partially understand, how we got here. I also want to provide some current examples of where the conversations are so off basis that they are negatively impacting not only those specific problems, but creating larger systematic problems in the process. And lastly, I want to suggest a way forward, and I'm going to try to do that in every episode, try to suggest a way forward in what you and I and everyone can do in our own small way to help remedy the current situation. So the first reason I'm going to point to is America's two-party system. So America has always had a political system dominated by two political parties. And I'm not going to give you a whole history lesson on party evolution today, but I want to point this out because it shows long-standing challenges in America that are kind of built into our system. But just because we have a two-party system doesn't mean we should only have two-sided perspectives on all issues. I want you to think about anything that's super complex, the human body, a car, things like that, and imagine that doctors and mechanics were only ever to look at two possibilities when trying to diagnose those problems. It wouldn't go very well, and both those disciplines require deep knowledge and understanding to get them to function properly. And that's what this is really about. How do we get our society and our government to function properly? And it starts with us. It starts with how we're talking about these issues. Now, if you're a Democrat, I want you to take a quick inventory and think on what you believe is wrong with the Republicans. And if you are a Republican, I want you to think about what you believe is wrong with the Democrats. And maybe you're an independent and you can sit there and, you know, think about what's wrong with both of them. You may not realize this, but your criticism can most likely be linked to the divergence of opinion on one or both of the most fundamental questions of American domestic policy. And those two questions are these. Number one, what is the role of government? And number two, what is the role of the individual? Okay, so what is the role of government and what is the role of the individual? And the reason most of these issues that we have can be linked back to these fundamental questions is because this is the original argument in America. This is what the founders were arguing about. 
it's built into our system in all of its genius our system i i think has a lot of great qualities but it also has a lot of shortcomings that are derived from this as well and that's pretty much what i'm going to be talking about in this first part of today's episode so the first major debate we had once we are officially our own country and we had broken away from great britain was about the u.s constitution itself our original constitution was called the articles of confederation and it made the federal government very weak i mean the federal government under the articles of confederation couldn't even tax people so imagine that a federal government that could not tax I can hear the applause of conservatives out there applauding the no federal government taxes. But when we look at how the Articles of Confederation actually functioned, it was a complete disaster. And that's why the founders decided they needed to scrap it and replace it with our new U.S. Constitution and the Constitution we have today. But back to the debates around it, the central question was how much power and how much responsibility should the federal government have and should the state governments have and should the individual have so it's really a balance of power it's a balancing act between giving the federal government power and responsibility giving the state governments power and responsibility and giving the individual power and responsibility which typically the power of the individual we typically think of those more of like individual rights so that was the first debate and that was just about role of government. And that is a common thread through all of the debates into this the big second debate that we had in America, which is over the issue of slavery in the mid-1800s. Now, obviously, debates over slavery had a massive moral component. And we tend to nowadays kind of look back at slavery and just think of it as a moral issue, which obviously it is. But the moral component at the time was only a small part of the debate. There were economic and political components to consider. And there were also some major questions of how much power should the federal government have? Should the federal government be able to tell individual states they can't have slavery? Can a state simply just break away from the country if its government and the people of that state want to? Uh, these questions were so unresolvable that it cost the blood of 600,000 Americans, and or I should say the lives of 600,000 Americans, blood of a lot more. And that was the cost to bring the end of the servitude that had clearly spit in the face of the very freedom and equality that we had boasted in our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. But again, the common thread of role of government present in that big conflict. In the third big debate, and this is the last one I'll talk about historically, is the debate of the government regulating the economy to both allow individuals to pursue their own economic self-interest while protecting other individuals from the possible exploitation from their fellow Americans. We see this in the transition if you look at the you know 1880s and throughout the 1930s. We went from an industrial revolution that springboarded American becoming the world's largest industrial producer by 1900. But even with this economic growth, we saw so many negative things happening at the same time. We saw workers being exploited or even killed by unsafe working conditions. We had child labor. We had unsanitary food and drug production, pollution, and misuse of natural resources. I think you get the picture. There's a lot of bad stuff happening underneath the surface of this massive industrial boom, which was obviously a good thing. 
in response to that, we had a progressive era. During that progressive era, we got an eight-hour workday. We got safety regulations. We had nature conservation. We ended child labor. We had things like the Pure Food and Drug Act that were passed and much more. And it was actually a Republican named Teddy Roosevelt that really gave that movement life in the early 1900s. But again, it came down to balancing the role of government with the role of the individual. So now we want to try to understand where the current Republican and Democratic parties stand on these fundamental questions of what is the role of government and what is the role of the individual. And to do that, we need to look at their platforms and the history behind those platforms. So the current Democratic Party finds its roots in FDR's New Deal in the 1930s, in JFK and Johnson's Great Society and the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. And both of those decades, the 1930s and the 1960s, changed the trajectory of the Democratic Party and, quite frankly, the trajectory of the United States. Uh, Both of these eras saw America becoming more and more comfortable with the federal government, taking on more of a role with programs like Social Security, uh, Medicare, and regulation of the financial sector, things like that. And many liberals or progressives look back at these time periods with great pride. While on the other side, conservatives look at these periods with a level of disdain because they see it as contributing to what they see as America's biggest problem, which to them is too much government. So that brings me to the modern Republican Party. The modern Republican Party finds its roots in the 1920s with three consecutive conservative Republican presidencies. And the 1920s was a decade that brought tax cuts and deregulation and immigration restriction which has become kind of the bread and butter, if you will, of the Republican platform today. So President Coolidge, who was one of the Republican presidents during the 1920s, had a famous quote where he said, the chief business of America is business. So that shows the fundamental roots of the Republican Party being about being kind of like pro-business, which sometimes means being anti-worker to some folks, but I'm not going to get into all of that. But what I do want to do is point to an even more impactful president on the current platform of the Republican Party, which is Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan said in his 1980 campaign, government cannot solve the problem. Government is the problem. And since then, the Republican Party and Republicans at large have embraced the idea that government would mess up a one-car parade and that it should have a limited role in our lives, especially in economics. But again, the debate over the role of government comes down to the fundamental question of what is the role of the individual in society. So let's take a look at how the Democrats and Republicans look at the role of the individual. Now, I'm going to criticize both sides here. First, I'll start with the Democrats. Many Democrats have become way too detached from the idea of individual responsibility. For instance, I'm going to give you an example. If a liberal or progressive sees, let's say, a homeless person on the street, they tend to blame the system first before considering the individual choices that were made by that individual. Now, there is no doubt that a homeless person in that situation has had some bad things that have happened to them. But should we completely absolve the individual from the responsibility for their own life? Again, goes back to that fundamental question. But on the other side of that, it seems that the Republican Party puts too much emphasis on the individual and individual responsibility. And that overemphasis on individual responsibility leads many on the right to be naive or ignore the systematic inequities that do exist. 
For this, I'll use the same homeless person example. Generally, when a conservative sees a homeless person, they may immediately chalk it up to the bad choices that that person made. They may see that homeless person asking for money and think, get a job, or, you know, without knowing whether that person has a job or not. You know, that homeless person might be a veteran who suffers from mental health issues, or it could be a person that lost their home to foreclosure after losing their manufacturing job, you know, possibly after filing, I don't know, bankruptcy after debilitating medical bills. The point is, this overemphasis on individual responsibility can sometimes blind Republicans to the systematic problems that contributed to that person being in that situation. So if we put both of those points together, my overall point is too much emphasis on individual responsibility is just as problematic as not enough emphasis on it. So there has to be somewhere in the middle that's a good balance of that. To level my second criticism of both of these parties, let's start with the Democrats again. Many in the Democratic Party are turning to a government solution by default without considering other avenues. This second criticism fits nicely with the first because Normally, when there is an unequal outcome, detected or, per- or a perceived inequality observed, liberals will come up with a government solution to the problem. I'm not against government solutions, but I am against assuming there is always a government solution or that a government solution is the only solution. On the other side of that, the Republican Party are so anti-government by default that to them, no solution can be a government solution. Because as Reagan said, government cannot solve the problem, government is the problem. So for example, most all Americans agree that our healthcare system is too expensive and it doesn't create better overall health outcomes compared to our counterparts in other countries. But many in the Republican Party refuse to even consider a government solution, even if the government solution might be the best option. Not even considering the government option is limiting the ability of our elected officials to address the challenges that Americans are facing. I don't think Americans really care if it's a government solution or a private sector solution. We just want a solution. So if you're a Democrat or a Republican, I would humbly ask you to ask yourself if you fall into these pitfalls. And maybe you don't, but I think it's worth thinking about and it's worth self-reflecting on. So generally speaking, when I look at the two political parties and their contribution to this division that we see, it's my belief that each of these parties in their current state are ideologically disadvantaged because their worldview depends so much on simplicity, but both sides mistake that simplicity for purity. So because of that, people on both sides of the political spectrum fall into the trap of putting a premium on the purity of their worldview rather than the function of their worldview. And I think the healthcare example is really good to illustrate this. We all agree there is a problem. It's not functioning properly, okay? I don't think you're gonna find many Americans that are like, yeah, we love our healthcare system. It's so easy to access and you know, all the billing is so simple and all of that, Nobody, nobody's really saying that. The Republicans tell us that it's because of too much government and too much central planning. And the Democrats say, that it's because there's not enough government regulation and not enough central planning. And those are literally the exact opposites as far as what each party is diagnosing as the problem. So because neither side is willing to escape from their ideological box, people are literally dying or filing for bankruptcy or just feeling insecure about their overall ability to gain access to affordable healthcare services. And I just think that from a 
accountability standpoint, that's just inexcusable uh, in this country. We need to be able to find a solution to that issue. And as I said before, I don't think the average American cares if it's a government solution or a private sector solution. We would just like to see a solution. So I'm not going to sit here and try to tell you that I have the answer to the healthcare issue, but I do know that both sides are limiting their problem-solving skills by putting an artificial box or ceiling on what is possible. I think maybe that could be a topic for another episode. So if that's something you might be interested in, you know, let me know and we can maybe make that happen. So the two-party system contributes to the division and it's helped along the way by the misguided goal that both parties have of political purity. And you might be saying, well, the two-party system has always been here. So why is it getting worse now? And I really have three reasons for that, which kind of makes our time period unique. And we have to be able to identify these three things and start perceiving them in a little bit of a different way. So number one is a mainstream media that is, quite frankly, addicted to sensationalism. They're addicted to exaggeration and hyperbole. And they do that because it's marketable. Let me address the mainstream media here uh, first and then I'll go into the other two reasons. I think most of us can at least agree that the media in the United States is far from perfect. The degree to which it's far from perfect would change depending on who you talk to obviously. But really I think the biggest problem with the media is us. Now you might be confused by that. I think the biggest problem with the media is us. So remember, it starts with us and ends with us. And we are a country of consumers and an economic system that places a premium on attracting viewers. And we are the viewers. So in pursuit of attracting viewers, news stations have stopped focusing on giving news, you know, like back in the days of Walter Cronkite, the greatest newscaster of all time. And the need for 24-hour coverage has required a lot of airtime to be filled and we see these news stations filling them with opinion hosts they're literally called opinion hosts so i'm talking about people like sean hannity on fox or don lemon on cnn or rachel maddow on msnbc you know just to name a few because so much emphasis has been placed on people like these individuals i think many of us have lost sight of the fact that these people are not there to deliver the news they are there to deliver you, to deliver you to the couch at night, to turn on the TV and watch. That's what they're there for. And they deliver you by offering affirmation, not information. So I want to say that again. They deliver you there by offering affirmation, not information. So in reality, most conservatives, you know, want to retreat at night to watching Hannity before bed to reaffirm their perspectives and liberals get their dose of Don Lemon to get their fix as well. And I think what we say we want and what our actions say we want are not necessarily aligned. So a lot of people say that we want objective media, but we don't behave like we do because we don't watch the objective stuff. We watch the partisan stuff. We watch the opinion stuff because for whatever reason, it attracts us. If it didn't attract us, they wouldn't do it. To move off of the media here, to go to the second thing that I think is unique about our time period, which is making the division worse, is social media. And specifically, social media platforms that reinforce misguided preconceptions that people have. This is actually more troubling to me 
than the mainstream media problem. And it's basically the process of people choosing social media as their primary source to derive information. And maybe it's not their primary source, but it's certainly a source. You know, how many times we've heard people say, well, I read this on Facebook or, you know, they're quick to share a meme that lacks necessary context and is completely misleading. And, you know, you see that stuff enough, even if you're not necessarily sharing things, just seeing headlines that, you know, have certain word choices and stuff. It does affect the way you view the world. So we can't underestimate the impact of that. Now. I empathize with why people would feel inclined to look to social media for their information because of the problems that I talked about with the mainstream media. But this seems like jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire in a lot of ways. We get frustrated by the mainstream media for its sensationalism, for its perceived bias, for the part it plays in our divisions. And then we turn around and we trade it for another medium that does those exact same things but through a way more sophisticated system that is less detectable by us. Like we don't even know necessarily that we're being influenced. It's less noticeable than, you know, a straight up opinion on the 10 o'clock news hour on CNN or Fox at night. I think in order to understand this, we need to take a step back and see what the business model of these platforms are. And to make it simple, I mean, they make money by selling ads. They sell more ads by attracting more people. And they attract more people by giving you things you will click on. We say we want more objective media, but most of us won't click on the objective stuff. And the more a person clicks on the politically biased headlines, and the, the more likely you are to keep seeing more of them. And Facebook and other platforms are tracking your preferences. I mean, we know that. It's not some conspiracy theory. It's the way that the algorithms are set up. And they're set up that way to be able to predict your behavior for the sole purpose of getting you to do one thing, which is click. We need to recognize that social media is there to facilitate socializing and advertising, not to facilitate news or truth, because it's really leading us all astray in our political understanding, in my opinion. So I think media and social media kind of together are are separate issues, but they kind of speak to the same thing. And it's really the motivation for what those business models are and how it affects our behavior. So just to recap, so far I've talked about four main things that make us divided. And number one was the two-party system. Number two was the deficiencies of the two parties themselves. Number three was a sensationalized media. And number four was social media that is kind of being perceived or used as something that it's not. And all four of those things lead to what I consider to be the biggest and most impactful reason for our division. And that is binary thinking. So what I mean by that is our obsessive need to reduce complex issues into two boxes to make it a binary subject. There are several problems, obviously, with this approach to organizing our political discussions. First, it completely ignores the nuance and diversity within the two boxes. So to give you an example of something, I'm going to use the abortion issue. We have basically two boxes that we put people in with the abortion issue, pro-life and pro-choice. That's binary. However, within those two positions, if you really look into them deeply, there is so much nuance that gets glossed over because we are too busy telling the other box they're wrong without acknowledging that there are people within our own box that we don't 100% agree with. So the population thinking this way is also 
beneficial for politicians. And the reason it's beneficial is it allows them to be lazy when articulating their positions on an issue. Staying with abortion, if you are looking to court conservative voters and you're a politician, all you have to say is that you're pro-life. You don't have to talk about anything else uh, when it comes to that issue. And on the other side, if you're courting liberal voters, all you have to do is say you're pro-choice. This is a perfect example of an issue where people care more about your position on the problem rather than your solution to the problem. And binary thinking leads us to that. The other thing binary thinking does is that it spills into issues that are not necessarily even opposed to the other. For example, can I back the blue and at the same time believe that black lives matter? I think I can, and I do. Can I support our troops and stand for the anthem while still supporting efforts to combat racial injustice? I think I can, and I do. But we get forced into these simple boxes when faced with complex challenges that need solutions, not just opinions. So an example that gets me really fired up that I think fits into what I'm talking about here is no-knock warrants. And if you're not familiar with a no-knock warrant, basically it kind of is what it sounds like. The police can search a home without actually knocking and presenting themselves and saying that they're policemen. The reason that they're able to get this is to combat drugs. And if they're, you know, obviously you can think about if a police officer knocks on a door and says, hey, we have a warrant to search the house. In the meantime, somebody's flushing the drugs down the toilet or whatever. So the no-knock warrant, I understand the, the logic of that to try to combat drugs. The reason I'm using it as an example is because it has such a profound impact on lives of many Americans in our binary political discussions at the highest level. And I just believe that it's bad policy because it leads to police being put in unneeded dangerous situations and it also perpetuates disproportionate police action against black Americans. So if you remember Breonna Taylor's death back in March of 2020, she was tragically killed by police fire in her own home while she was in her bed. And all of the people involved were just put in a bad situation created by a bunch of bad policy. And all of that bad policy led to the result of a 26-year-old young woman being killed in her home. So if you forget what that situation was about, let me explain real quick. The police were lawfully executing a no-knock warrant at Breonna Taylor's house. Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, exercising his right as part of another law in Kentucky, which is called the Stand Your Ground Law, which basically allows somebody to shoot an intruder that's coming into their house, uh, shot through the door at what he thought were people breaking into their home. So police returned fire, and Breonna was killed laying in her bed in the crossfire. So she committed no crime but her front door was busted down and now she's dead. Now, Brianna Taylor is just one example of a no-knock warrant gone bad. And it's even more troubling when you consider that 50% of the time, these no-knock warrant searches end, end up coming up empty. There are no drugs in the house. So someone's door is busted in, their privacy is completely thrown to the side. And most of the time, or at least half of the time, these searches are coming up empty. And I just want you to consider real quick, I'm not going to go into this much more, that this is primarily happening in low-income areas. You don't see in the wealthy suburbs of, you know, pick your wealthy suburb in America, you don't see people's doors being busted down looking for drugs. But you better believe there are drugs in wealthy neighborhoods as well. I want to point to this. 
as profound of an impact that no-knock warrants can have, and this is a policing issue, this is a racial issue, this is a uh, drug issue, there are so many things that cross over into no-knock warrants. And you know how many times no-knock warrants came up in the 2020 presidential debates? Not once. Not one time. Instead, the candidates argued about the semantics of riots and protests and argued, and then, you know, amongst ourselves, we argued about whether we should be demonizing cops or demonizing African Americans. And both are wrong answers. But our binary thinking led us to a discussion about our positions on the issues rather than our solutions to the issues. I'm going to close it up here, and I want to point to a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt. She says, Small minds talk about people. Average minds talk about events. But great minds talk about ideas. So in the end, cooler heads must prevail in this country if this country is going to endure. It just has to happen. We need to get some logic and sanity back into these conversations. We need people leading who see the ability to compromise as a strength not a weakness. We need people leading this country who can disagree with an idea without hating the person who holds the idea. And we need people leading this country who have a higher loyalty to the country than to a political party or a political figure. And lastly, we need people leading this country that believe the government can help, but that individuals must also help themselves. And if we are to get to a time where things are going to get better at all, we must first change the way society perceives the issues at hand. A society creates its politicians. Politicians don't create the society. If we want them to be better, we must be better. So as I said before, it starts with us and ends with us. And whether we want to admit it, our government is a reflection of us. The last thing I would suggest is to stop asking who can I blame and to start asking, who can I help? If you are a person who frequently finds themselves feeling caught in the middle of people with extreme or unyielding views, speak up. And it's okay to not have a hardline stance on a specific issue. Or here's an idea. It's okay to say, I don't know. There are so many people out there with half-baked opinions. And we would just be further along if you just said, I don't know. We need to quit allowing the most attention to continue going to those who say or do the most radical things. And that comes down to us and our decisions on what we watch and what we read and what we say and how we interact. Because at the end of the day, politicians, the media, businesses, they do what they do because it works. It makes them money. It gets them elected. And that's because of our behavior and our reaction to the way they're basically marketing themselves and marketing the ideas and all the things that I've talked about today. So I'm going to leave you with this. In the words of Albert Einstein, the world as we have created it is a process of our thinking. It cannot be changed without changing our thinking. And it's my hope that once we change our thinking, maybe then we can change our talk. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. You can find full show notes from today's episode at changeourtalk.com. If you are liking the podcast, I would be honored if you would go ahead and hit that subscribe button and leave me a review. In the meantime, remember, democracy only thrives when ideas can flow. That flow is dependent on our communication 
So if we want to change our society and country for the better, we must change the way we talk. I hope you tune in next time. Until then, take care.